Hi, I'm Miranda Genowitz, and this is Whereabouts, where we explore the curious ways that politics, business, and culture intersect with real estate markets around the world. In this episode of Whereabouts, we find ourselves in Silicon Valley, California, home to thousands of high-tech startups, including giants like Facebook, Google, and Apple. And when the most successful of the startups go public, they often create dozens or hundreds of millionaires or billionaires overnight. In 2019, locally-based companies including Airbnb, Uber, and Pinterest have or will soon make their stock public and bring the area its next wave of young, cash-ready homebuyers. My co-host today is Silicon Valley real estate veteran Michael Dreyfus of Golden Gate Sotheby's International Realty. Mike and I are here to discuss what can be expected in the coming months for both buyers and sellers as a result of the newest bonanza of IPO millionaires. So, Mike, I'm excited to be launching this season of Whereabouts here at home in Palo Alto. And for those who don't know, Palo Alto is the epicenter of Silicon Valley and the birthplace of some of its most important tech companies like Facebook and Google. When those two went public, their IPO stood alone as the biggest news of that year. And what makes now different is you have a handful of locally based companies with public offerings happening in 2019. This is causing a lot of buzz, particularly as to its effects on the real estate market. Yeah, I think one of the, obviously everybody's, I'll say excited, but um, everybody's focused on uh, on the big gang of unicorns that are going public all at once, which is probably the biggest uh, collection of I'll call them publicly known IPOs that we've had since 2000, in 99 to 2000, when things were crazy up here. I, I've been through Google's IPO and Facebook's IPO, um, and uh, and these are of that significance. And I think that's why they've, they've captured people's attention because they're so well known in terms of um, you know nobody really talks about a chip company or or really talks about a biotech company as much as they talk about Uber and Pinterest and Slack and things that that people are so aware of and use in their daily lives. I'd say another distinction is that these companies now are more mature as they go to market. They've seen several rounds of investment at increasingly high valuations and have a greater number of seasoned high-level employees. Is all that going to mean an unprecedented slew of wealthy employees when the shares go public? Is that what's driving the fears of a huge spike in property prices? Well, it's a good point. I think actually you can also go the other way is that because they're so mature, what you've seen with these companies that we did not see in the past is a lot of liquidity come into the companies and take out some of the employee's stock on an earlier basis. So a lot of these companies have have been already putting money into employees' hands and, and spreading it around. And so I think you can make an argument that they may be a little more muted than people expect because that liquidity has been happening all along, given the fact these companies have been raising so many series and so many, you know, so many rounds of, of financing. A lot of that was directed at trying to get the employees a little bit liquid so they stay. Um, one thing that, that people in startups don't like is not going public or not being able to sell their shares. That's what they're in it for. And so with the long lives of these new startups and these unicorns, um, a lot of a lot of them got taken out. 
I just wanted to share some statistics. So in San Francisco, a population of 900,000, there were 5,500 home sales in the last year. And Palo Alto, population 65,000, uh, 450 homes sold in the last year. So is this just a few more cash-ready buyers in an already tight market, or are we looking at a new playing field as the year progresses? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that this is really how we roll all the time. You know, <laughs> that, that these these liquidity events are always happening here. And, and so I think there's a tendency to kind of overemphasize what's going on with these. Um, they are significant because they're big and there's a lot of them. But if you just go through... I can tell you in my business, when people buy houses, they're usually buying houses because they've had a liquidity event or their stock is is going up. I mean, we had I had several deals with Apple employees last year because Apple's stock was performing like a rocket. Um, so so I think it's it's something that's always happening. And then I think the other part of it is too, it, it's it's not an instant event. It's not something where, you know, everybody the day that the IPO or even the day that the lockup ends all all go out and spend their money. It's something that that gets spread out over time. You know, Facebook was a very good example of that. They came public and they actually didn't perform well coming out of the gate. And but the Facebook employees were a significant part of my market for the next three years. Um, You know, as that stock recovered and as they decided to sell, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. Do do I sell my stock right now? Do I hang on? You know, uh, do I need to buy a house? I mean, there's a lot that goes on in it. So I think it's probably better to think of this as the ongoing engine uh, that drives Silicon Valley and San Francisco housing. And it's not just the buyers asking these questions, but sellers too. For me, it's been a consistent piece of the conversation at the moment. Sellers exploring whether all this new wealth means they should wait to sell or time it differently. Your thoughts on that? Definitely. I mean, the the um, and, and buyers. I mean, some buyers are panicking a little bit too, sure. thinking they got to get in before it. And let's face it, you know, real estate agents encourage all that. So they don't encourage the sellers waiting, but they encourage the buyers to buy. And, you know, I I basically try to focus my sellers on the moment that it's good to be a seller right now, because that's, you know, that's something you can't control and you don't know what's going to happen. And, I, and I'll go back to the Facebook example. If you see me on CNBC talking about Facebook not performing and and the interview guy is trying to paint it like it's a disaster and I'm saying ex- essentially what I'm saying now is that there's other companies and there's other other things so from a seller standpoint you know California is cyclical we've had a really good run and to sit around and wait is just you know there's there's risk sellers sellers always look at upside and they don't really focus on risk and I think that's part of our job is to is both of both are okay upside's okay but but risk is also a big deal And thinking again of the buyers, particularly buyers whose capacity to buy and budget are not getting a big IPO boost this year. As much as they'd like to stay in Palo Alto, we're seeing a lot of them expanding their home search out of the immediate area. Definitely. Looking south to San Jose or Morgan Hill or East Bay communities across the Dumbarton Bridge like Castro Valley and Fremont. These are attracting more and more buyers who work in Silicon Valley but just can't afford a home here. That's a trade-off since we have a huge traffic problem that only seems to get worse by the day. Yes. And sitting in that traffic has a huge impact on people's time and quality of life. What other trade-offs are buyers making and what other considerations should they be looking at? 
Well, it's people want homes and they want to live in a home. Um, I think one of the things that we're going through here is it's not necessarily the Ozzie and Harriet 1950 house that a lot of, let's take Palo Alto and Menlo Park, for example, that a lot of that stock is. And I think uh, this newer generation would be happy in a condo, but they want theirs. They want a house. And so we're not doing a good job at delivering that. And at the same time, you're right. Time is a huge deal in people's lives and traffic is time. And so it's really amazing what people will pay not to have to go across a bridge. Um, our area is, is kind of a Manhattan in a way. It's a peninsula and, and there's three bridges that get you over. And you can even say, if you count Marin, the Golden Gate Bridge, I mean, San Francisco is part of that peninsula. And there's, there's, you know, people definitely are prioritizing their time and being close to things. And so the question is, how far can that go? And, and how high can those prices go? And that's another interesting thing about the IPOs and the money that's coming out. Will it be enough? Um, you know, for the very first time last year, I was seeing, you know, the typical dual income fang couple, you know, Facebook or Google or Apple tell me they couldn't afford it. Just flat out, we can't do this and, and we can't even get enough money to do this. And so I think we're, we're pushing the envelope for our, even for our very, very wealthy, you know, people here to get into housing. So let's pull back for a moment and take a look at that then. Pull out some figures for Palo Alto. Three bed, two bath on a 5,000 square foot lot. It's so it's so funny you asked that because it just made me flash back to the CNBC interview, which that was, uh, I think that was 2012, I think it was. And uh, they they asked me that question at the end, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to say it, and I finally did. And the answer then was a million eight, and they all gasped. I could almost hear all of America <laughs> gasping when I said, you know, three bedroom, two bath, you know, 2,000 square foot house can cost you a million eight. Well, Uh-oh. today, that's $3 million in North Palo Alto. I mean, I, I don't think it's hard to even help anybody on this entire peninsula for less than $2 million. Um, you know, it's, it's a struggle. And, uh, and that's just to get in. That's just a start. That is such an incredible amount of money we're talking about, way out of the ballpark for lots of people, educators, government workers, even non-executive level tech employees. What are the conversations you're having with those potential buyers? Well, are they going to leave? Totally. <laughs> I mean, that's just just get pack up and leave. And right. um, and I think we're we're seeing that we're seeing people that have to make you know decisions on having a better lifestyle where they can actually afford things. And you know, locally in the Bay Area, the East Bay is is probably the hottest area in terms of where people are going to try to find housing that they can afford. Um, Oakland, Berkeley, Oakland is having a a big renaissance, um, you know, and, and then if you go farther down South, down our peninsula into San Jose, you know, there's Gilroy and there's the, there's the areas that are, that are far South, but those are really starting to stack up with a commute that's identical driving across a bridge. I mean, you're talking about, hour, hour and a half to get in uh, during traffic, if not two, if things don't go well. Well, a lot of these people work for companies and particularly in tech who often seem to come up with creative work solutions for their employees. Some of them have on-campus services, work from home arrangements. How are these companies helping to tackle these issues? You know, there's a lot of flex commuting going on. Well, there's a lot of, there, there are people that have 
that actually commute on airplanes into the valley. I mean, we've seen a lot of people. I was on a flight to Bend recently, and there were people that were coming in to work in Silicon Valley for a couple of days and then going back home. So telecommuting has allowed that to happen. Also, the expansion of these tech companies, you know, Google and Facebook have offices all over the place. And so it, le- it gives people the ability to maybe work in the Denver office and fly in and spend two days, three days here. You're, you're, we're seeing a lot more of that, of people just kind of doing temporary gigs here and living somewhere else. We also see the companies themselves making choices about where they want to grow. So instead of expanding hubs here, building new hubs or moving headquarters somewhere else. Given the focus on Silicon Valley, most seem ready to pay the premium to stick around. But where they do look elsewhere, is that still in the Bay Area, but in less expensive communities? Or are they looking out of the area completely? I mean, they're... they're they're expanding and opening up other offices, but they're not moving. They're not leaving. I, I've, I've had one company that I knew of that, that left, a small company that actually, and it's funny I mentioned Ben because that's what they did. They the, he, the founder walked in. He had 40 employees. He said, we're going to Bend and you're all invited. Um, <laughs> and I had the CFO as a client. And, and ironically, she went and she came back um, like a year later. But that's you don't see much of that. Um, the You know, the Valley is... It's kind of like, you know, everybody's tried to change Hollywood. There's always a new Hollywood somewhere, but Hollywood never goes away and it's not going to go away. And the Valley's not going to go away because the concentration of talent is here. And so, you know, the if you get up in a high level in a company, you're going to live here. You're not you're not going to be anywhere else, but you're going to be here. And and it's interesting. Pinterest, who, who is, uh, just went public, just announced that they're opening they're based in San Francisco, but they just announced they're opening an office in Palo Alto, but a sizable office. So just it's another example of how there's talent here and the companies have to be here to, to use it. Well, and so they continue to expand here and attract new employees, and that means new buyers to the market. And I think one of the things people find really surprising when they get here is the pace of our market, how quickly properties come on and are sold often within days. That is not how the experience goes in most other markets in this country and seems like a market that doesn't cater to its own clients, i.e. these are affluent people, they're busy. You know, you go away for a weekend and the property of your dreams got sold because you weren't here for the three days it was on market. Yeah, the pace of play is frantic. Um, At the same time, it kind of fits the culture in a weird way. I mean, it's a frantic culture and people are instant messaged all the time. And so it's funny to think about how our real estate market sort of matches that pace. And also, I think we're probably at the forefront of we don't really know it, but I think we're at the forefront of what of a changing way to sell houses. And, you know, everybody's trying to make it really easy, you know, to, um, you know, to push a button and buy a house. But of, of the things that that are difficult in selling a house, which, you know, one of them is how much money am I going to get? Um, but one of them's time. And, and we've really accelerated that, that ability to, to sell something. And that's a positive thing for a seller, if you think about it. So it's, it, it's, I think that's part of, of the culture we're in and might encourage what we're doing. Um, and that might be as significant as the obvious answer, which is supply and demand. There's not much supply and there's a lot of demand. And that demand is why homes go under contract just days after they're listed on the MLS and 
often with bidding wars that drive the price up by hundreds of thousands of dollars. I do want to mention, though, that time on MLS is actually quite misleading in our market. Something I find unique here is that we spend weeks and often months with our sellers overseeing a whole host of renovation and updating and staging before the property is listed publicly. This is unique to Silicon Valley. And my feeling is developed in order to really cater to the culture of the busy buyer in an expensive market. So wanting to buy a home that's move-in ready because there's no time to deal with renovating on your own and not wanting to carry a hefty mortgage on a $3 million house while it's being updated. I think you're making a good point. I mean, we we would you would think that we're we're prepping these houses to make them more attractive for sale, but I think where you're going is we're doing what has to be done for these buyers to buy it. They 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 don't have the time, they don't want to do it, and so, you know, we have to deliver a different set of product to these people than you might elsewhere. And that's becoming just more and more true. The, you know, with construction costs and, 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 and pricing of houses driving out labor, you know, and so more and more it's becoming more important to set that up. And I don't think we're far away from, you know, the staging becoming furniture is being sold. I, I think there is a market for a toothbrush house, you know, literally dishes <laughs> and the whole deal. I think there's a market for it. That's a really interesting concept, the fully equipped home for a buyer who just doesn't have the time to do any of it. I would imagine that would be particularly interesting for an executive relocating to Silicon Valley, maybe keeping their family home elsewhere. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how you educate that buyer relocating to Silicon Valley. Safe to say they're coming from a market that's lower priced or moves at a slower pace or probably both. How do you educate them so they are ready for the right house when it comes along? They have to get acclimated. Um, and, you know, lots of times that does mean it may be better off that they rent something and they they need to they need to get you know, what I tell my buyers is um, I'm going to teach you, you know, what's going on, what value is, what neighborhoods are. And by the time you buy a house, you're going to feel like you don't even need me because you're going to be so focused that you're going to know you're going to be sitting on a neighborhood waiting for that house. And when it comes up, you're going to know that's my house and you're going to know what it's worth. And that takes time here. And, and, and it's funny, it makes the real estate agent more important here than I think anywhere else, because you don't know what you're not seeing. And so if you think about lack of inventory is lack of knowledge. That's what it is for these buyers. They don't see enough to really make good decisions. And so they really need a good professional who's, who can tell them, you know, okay, you just looked at three houses today and, and they're all bad. Okay, none of those are good. <laughs> Without that, they would buy the best of the bad ones. Um, so so it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I tell people you can't drop out of the sky and buy a house here. It's just, it's just not a good way to do it. Um, occasionally, we get lucky and it's always funny when I, you know, first house I show somebody, I turn to them and say, you should buy this. I know you're not going to, but you should. Um, but that's very rare. It's really more of a hunt and it takes time. Actually, what you're talking about is really the shifting role of real estate agents generally. Um, MLS listings are online and readily available. Buyers can set their own alerts and know all about a new MLS listing as soon as we do. And a lot of these sites, Zillow and others, provide 
really comprehensive information about walkability scores and neighborhood schools, demographics and comps. As you say, the value in the real estate agent is now more focused on educating about the market and distilling all that reams of raw data into meaningful insights for a buyer. Um, Beyond that, though, is there a robust off-market world of properties that individual buyers need an agent to access? How do you see opportunities for buyers there? Yeah, that's that's an interesting part of our business, too, is how much is sold that's not public. And there's a few things driving that. I mean, one is just hustle. Like, you know, real estate agents are hustling for their clients or or the clients are hustling, trying to find something before everybody else sees it. So it, it creates this this uh, kind of j- jump in front market where you're, you're just you're getting something that is going to be public, but you're getting it before it's public. The other part is privacy. And, and it's funny because I've been saying that for a long time, but all of a sudden it's, it's in the news with Apple and Google and everybody's talking about privacy. And people are really uncomfortable with, you know, sellers, you, you list your house and some guy in Singapore is looking at your bedroom the next, <laughs> you know, literally six seconds later. And, and then when the buyers get it, there's a discomfort there as well. I mean, I remember being at a, a school event once and, and somebody uh, said they just bought a house and the woman next to him said, oh, I love your master bedroom. And it was a little creepy. <laughs> like, it's kind of like, <laughs> like you, I, I don't like that you were in my master bedroom. Um, so there's, there's, there's an element of that that's going on too. And, and so those two things together mean that there's a lot happening that's not public. And so the, the um, data sources that people are looking at, they treat them like they're perfect, but they're not. And that's part of the problem, I think. And, that, and again, I think this, this is something we're all learning. Facebook's not necessarily true. You know, what you're reading is not necessarily right. The estimate in Zillow is not necessarily, is not, you know, accurate. All, all that kind of stuff is being learned by this consumer set. And I bet in two or three years, everybody will just know that. But right now, I think people are, are making decisions on a, on a bad set of data. Well, I think that's right. And in the meantime, it's up to us to help them interpret the data in a meaningful and helpful way. All that to be continued. (laughs) Mike, it's been great to explore these issues with you today. And I'm definitely curious to see where we end up when the dust settles. It will be interesting to see where we are a year from now. It'll be very interesting to see how this all plays out. It's going to be a fast and furious year, I think. Wonderful chatting with you, Mike. My pleasure. And thanks so much for listening to this episode of Whereabouts. If you want to find out more about the Silicon Valley real estate market, or to learn more about my co-host, Michael Dreyfus, head to whereabouts-podcast.com. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review. I'm Miranda Genowitz, and you've been listening to Whereabouts. Whereabouts.